Hello, this is Melanie Curry with Speech Blog California, and I'm here today with John Bowders, Mayor of Emeryville, California. Hi, John. Hi, Melanie. Thanks nice for having to me. See you. Yeah, we are here to talk about how John has been such a great city council member and mayor for many years at Emeryville, and he has really gotten a lot done. And we are asking a question that Bike Talk once answered, which is, what can a mayor do? And John has some thoughts about that, so I'm going to let him go. Yeah, well, thanks for thanks to Bike Talk for inviting me back. I always enjoy uh, talking with uh, fellow active transportation enthusiasts and uh, those who are just interested in the topic. And the question about what a mayor can do is a really excellent question uh, because it, it begs the question of um, you know what what can your what is what is your local government empowered to do and and how do you actually engage your local government when it comes to advocating for the things you want in your community. So mayors, with a handful of exceptions, mayors don't actually in most cities have a lot of powers. Um, mayors, there's uh, what we call strong mayor systems where the mayor um, may have the right to um, veto something a city council does or um, the mayor's signature is required to approve something a city council does. And you see that in really large cities um, and Emeryville is, is not that kind of city. Um, most cities in California and um, I would imagine probably elsewhere in the United States um, have a, a less uh, less of a strong mayor system and more of what we call a council manager system of government, where the mayor is in most cases more of a figurehead um, and a representative of the city and has some agenda setting powers, but doesn't really um, have sort of like unilateral executive authority. So what can a mayor actually do? So in, in, in most cases, and in my case, um, the mayor is, is really the person who sets the tone uh, the mayor is the person who really um, calls attention, speaks on behalf of what the community wants. I mean, the mayor is the highest elected official technically in the city and uh, is the person who's charged with kind of speaking on behalf. If you think about um, kind of traditionally what happens when there's uh, something of new business opens, um, if there's a disaster, like your, your mayor is the person who speaks on behalf of the city, rallies those people, brings them into community with each other, um, paves a path for it, identifies what the city is going to do to either address a concern or rectify an issue or celebrate an accomplishment. And um, the same thing is true when it comes to the very sexy world of uh, bike infrastructure. And so uh, my, my, my personal point of view is that um, a mayor is somebody who um, not just cheerleads, um, but also kind of actually shows people the path that's possible and then encourages people to get on that path with them, that bike path, and uh, move in a, in a direction that makes the city um, you know, what it wants to be. I would add one other thing to that, which is mayors often also, as in my case, um, sit on regional boards and entities. And in those capacities, mayors actually have the ability to influence the region as well as other cities. And so uh, I sit in several other capacities outside of just being the mayor. I am the current vice chair of the Alameda County Transportation Commission, which is charged with uh, funding projects all across Alameda County that do all types of transportation modality, clean energy and infrastructure opportunities related to transit and goods movement. Um, everything from rail and freight to freeways and streets to bike and pedestrian safety um, and access, those are all things we do. And in my role there, I speak out um, as a member of that board about bike infrastructure, about pedestrian safety, um, and I help move our funding priorities and the, the dialogue in the county towards a more inclusive multimodal system. Um, similarly, I sit on the Air District Board, and in that capacity, there's a lot of focus on um, emissions reductions. and 
Uh, I try to model emissions reductions by bicycling to those meetings and participating in them. Um, in a way. <laughs> all the way, a long way, because we need to finish that Western span of the Bay Bridge, but a 41 mile bike ride for me uh, to the meeting to um, help really solidify for people that there are um, leaders in the community who have a shared vision for climate action, who believe that bikes um, are a vehicle of change and that they and that walking and biking are not just healthy for ourselves, but for the environment and for others. And so uh, that's kind of the way American influence those things is being outspoken on those things and leading by action. And I don't think there's anything vague or um, small about that either, because as a champion, you can um, not only influence and and help things along and help good policies happen. But there's two other aspects of this that I think I just wanna highlight. One is that you're a voice in these meetings, these regional meetings, these city council meetings, that you, you as a bicyclist and a bicycle advocate understand how important bicycling is and just being there and talking about it means that there is someone there talking about it because so many times a lot of these conversations, people don't think about bikes because there isn't someone there championing it and making it happen. And the other thing is, if you think about like a city that has a mayor that is not a champion, who doesn't understand, then a lot of people are gonna be frustrated trying to get things done because they might not have any support at city hall. And even though it doesn't seem like, you know, like a plan can take forever and ever and ever to happen. If you have somebody who wants to make it happen, be it an advocate or a champion inside the city government, it's a lot harder if you don't have a mayor who's right along with you saying, yes, in fact, let's do this and let's do more. That's huge. It, it is. And you know, there's you, you, you set it up really well because there are lessons you learn every day as an active transportation commuter, just as one example. Yeah. You don't have to be a commuter to learn these lessons. But in my case, um, my employer, my full-time employer, um, offered parking, monthly parking to all of the employees and was offering $125 a month for parking downtown Oakland. And um, I wasn't eligible because I don't need a parking space. And I went and said, you know, uh, this is great that uh, you've chosen to provide employee benefits to, to everyone. I said, but where's the alternative incentive? Like what, what about paying for me to have bike share or giving me the $125 a month to repair my bike or upgrade to an e-bike or um, to do something else that I find healthy and beneficial to myself. So if they want to use it for parking and I want to use it, in my case, it was, I want to go ice skating because um, we worked a block from the ice skating rink. And I said, I'd love to bike down here with my ice skates and, and just have my lunch hour and go skating. I would like to have a pass for that. And I don't use your, and for a fraction of what you pay for everyone else to have parking, you could be giving me a benefit that makes me healthier. And after several months of discussion, they actually opened it up and made it not just a parking program. It was a wellness program. And it was, you could use it for different things, including what I wanted. And a lot of people now actually use it for bike share and use it to, to do things like join a gym or whatever, and they don't use it for parking. And I think that's, that's the direction we need to go. And it's, and I took that lesson to a regional board mm -hmm. where we were reimbursing people for parking. We were giving them free parking tolls, mileage, which a lot of people will say, well, I live 40 miles away. And I say, technically I do too. And I bike and I'm not suggesting everybody should, but there's no, there's no benefits that come back to those of us who are actually reducing costs for businesses exactly. who are be reducing the wear and tear on roads and actually keeping the environment clean like there should be incentives then that prioritize us for e-bike you know grants tax credits 
um, things like that. There should be incentives mm -hmm. to give people the financial reason to make that choice as opposed to, well, it's easy to stick with my car because everything around it is being reimbursed for me. Yes. And actually, I would argue they have to take away all the incentives for driving, period. And people should bear that cost. We know that. We know we have to cut driving. So yep. let's make that happen. But that's a larger conversation, maybe a statewide conversation. It's also related to tax laws because there's been lots of talk about whether there's a tax benefit for biking like there is for driving. But on a local level, it's amazing that you can um, you can have that influence, like not only a local level, but in your in your organization at one organization at a time and then at a regional um, scale, too, because everybody should be benefiting from that kind of clear thinking about what the benefits actually are to everybody. I'm so glad you're on those boards. <laughs> well, it's, and, 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 you know, and you're, you were right, though, because. I'm in most cases, the only cyclist on any of them, um, a regular person who cycles. And so it it does lend that voice to the conversation. So when there is this knee jerk reaction and people say, I've had a couple of times where people have said, well, you just feel that way or think that way because you bicycle. And I say, so look at the rest of you, you all drive. And so the reason we keep spending billions on freeways is because it's what you do, yes. right? And I don't wanna spend billions on freeways because it doesn't benefit me. So. Of course, I want to build the bike bridge from Oakland to Alameda. And of course, I want to have an East Bay Greenway because that's what other people use. And you just haven't ever had somebody sit on this board with you who had that experience. And that was that was their route and their commute. So you want to fix the 580 freeway? Great. I want an East Bay Greenway. Like, yeah. let's figure out how to actually put parity into what we build, because for a lot less money, you could put a lot more people on my Greenway than you can with three miles of funding for your freeway. So that's where the conversation changes when you elect people mm -hmm. who this is their lifestyle and their priority. It, it puts new people into the discussion that weren't previously part of it that have to yeah. be accounted for by other decision makers. It's terrible. It sounds like we're trying to like argue that we have to normalize biking where for us, biking is normal. Hello people. <laughs> but at least I, I always like, I always like Melanie when people say to me, well, it's just a hobby you have. And I'm like, I've bicycled to school starting in kindergarten. My first day of school in kindergarten, I bicycled down the hallway of the school and I locked my bike to my desk. And the teacher had to explain to me where the bike rack was outside on the back of the building because I was literally just like, well, I take my bike everywhere. And I locked it to my desk. And that should, that kind of paints a picture of who I am. But I biked to school my whole life. So for me, there was no like rush of like, wanting a license to whatever, you know, drive a car and whatnot. I took a bus to high school. So I, I guess part of what I'm saying is like we, we kids, you know, kids grow and they get to 16 and it's like you've graduated from the bike is what we teach everyone. And now you have a car yeah. instead of like, we actually teach kids like this is actually in your financial interest, your health interest, you know, like way, I, I saved a lot more money in my life by owning a bicycle instead mm -hmm. of, and getting rid of a car when I had one. So like, I, I really feel that we have a lot to teach people and, 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 and a lot of long ways to go, but it really begins early. Yeah. Oh, that's just so exciting. And I don't want to get too far off topic, but it reminds me of an article that I saw this morning about uh, the cost of living. This is from the Eno Transportation Center. The cost of living, of course, is going up, but most of the costs are for driving, for mm -hmm. insurance, for gas, for the cost of the upkeep of the car, which kind of, I, I saw the headline and I was like, sure, sure, sure. But then I was reading through, it was like, no, that's just the cost that is driving most of our high cost of living. And as a person who, I, I have a car, but I hardly ever drive it. I am super aware of those costs and how much I'm saving by 
leaving it and not touching it and using my bike, mm-hmm. using my bike. And we are lucky. We live in the Bay Area, so we can get to everything we want pretty much with our bikes. Yeah, but it's also because people like you are working to make sure that that happens at different levels. So there's advocates and then there's people like you in elected office. And that's awesome. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been able to do in Emeryville? Yeah, what would you like me to start with? We have so many fun things going on. It's kind of a power packed little city. We're a one square mile city wedged between Oakland and Berkeley. For those who are listening who don't know where Emeryville is, we don't blame you. We're known for Ikea and Pixar, but there's a lot of other cool things (laughs) here too. And um, Emeryville has been really busy with active transportation planning. So let's start with what everyone wants to know is what are we doing? And um, I think the most recent thing we did is really important. This past uh, COVID experience was kind of really just this like diamond in the rough opportunity on active transportation infrastructure for those who had Mm -hmm. city officials to your excellent opening questions, um, who had city officials who kind of saw like there's a there's an opportunity here. So for a long time, the Emeryville general plan has had a greenway that traverses across the city from the northwest corner to the southeast corner, I'm sorry, northeast corner to the southwest corner. And it's uh, separated, it's on an old rail, uh, an old rail path and a full bike trail with pedestrian compliment, you know, compliments, front doors of homes, just walk out onto it, it's car free. And there are two segments in the trail that uh, where the old rail line is, was, was in the middle of a street. So there's a street and one of them is Doyle street um, where the bike, it's a bike boulevard and it had been, but what we were seeing was that there were a lot of cars just using Doyle as a shortcut north, south through the city, because there'd be traffic on the other couple of main routes, San Pablo and Hollis. And you know, to, to have these two segments of the Greenway that have about a six block span of Doyle Street that they co-share, um, you know, constantly full of cars and near the south end of that stre- stretch, there's uh, two parks and a playground. Um, you know, it had been in our vision and I need to give a shout out to Vice Mayor Ali Medina, who is my partner on the Transportation Committee and our city staff. We've had it in the plan, in the works behind the scenes for several years. We're like, we're going to we're going to convert this street into a carless street. Like we are going to get cars off of the street and make it a bike ped oriented street. And so when COVID happened and there was this need for more space and people going outside, we immediately were like, we wanna put K-Rail up down the middle of the street, remove all the southbound parking and all the southbound traffic on it and turn that into an expanded bike pedway so that the people using the greenway to go outside or whatever would be able to use it more often because there was fewer people driving at the time because they're all at home. And it was so popular that within six months, we went from pilot and temporary safe street, like everyone else was doing, we converted into a permanent project. And so we partnered with the Transportation Commission. We took a $75,000 grant. We took some other transportation funds we had in the city, and we permanently removed the southbound traffic on Doyle Street between uh, 61st uh, and what is that ocean? And we actually closed two entire blocks completely to traffic. So there's no incentive to drive up Doyle street now, unless you actually live on one of those three blocks in between. Um, and we closed it between our park and our playgrounds so that kids can actually cross those streets safely. And we have barriers up there. And then we closed it at the North end next to the mouth of the, the greenway, the separated trail, so that it was not an incentive for people at that cross street to use it as a, as a place to get onto Doyle street. So there was no cross traffic um, issues there. And I, I will tell you, Melanie, I biked down it a, a number of months after it was installed. There was tons of people on it. 
And uh, a gentleman yelled my name and I was like, I stopped my bike. I was with my friends. I stopped my bike. I went back, like, who's calling me? And this guy stopped me and I had no idea who he was. And he's like, you're council member Bowders. And I said, I, I am. And I was kind of scared at the moment. And I was like, why does this man know me? <laughs> and he's like, I follow you on Twitter. And this is the best effing thing that we've ever had. He's like, I taught my kids to bike on this street. Wow. We walk the street all the time now. You know, I have talked to residents who um, no longer drive their kids to daycare. They bike with their kids down the path to daycare. I and, and that gets back to my point about you teach them early that you can do things for yourself, that you can be free and independent. A car isn't freedom. A car is a cage. A car is literally a cage. A bicycle is freedom. And these are there are little kids now who bike to their daycare with their parents. And I get residents who email me and I have a smile on my face, Melanie, every morning because we had a lot of neighbors, neighboring cities who had all these big plans. We're going to slow street this many miles. We're going to slow street all these blocks. And everyone was looking at us going, well, where's yours? Why don't you have a big plan? And I was like, I want to deliver something that we can keep. And I know like what at a, at a scale that we have, like we're going to pick something that was already in discussion that people already use that we can build from and we're going to keep it. So that was the big accomplishment. But now we've kind of moved from that to, well, what are we going to do next? And we have several things we're going to do. So we we approved a plan to redesign 40th Street, which is one of our biggest streets in the city. Mm -hmm. And it is going to be uh, a road diet where two lanes are going to become transit only. And the parking on the entire north side of the street is going to go away, the entire stretch of 40th Street, and become a two-way cycle track. And we're going to do pedestrian bulb outs at every intersection along that stretch. Wow. Um, That'll be a major change because there's a lot of traffic on that street. Yes, we are, we, we are reprioritizing 40th Street and it goes to from BART, it's it, BART is across the border there in Oakland, but it goes from BART to all these jobs for hourly wage workers, for people and, and shopping, and it also connects to the Bay Trail. And there's no better corridor that could be used for moving people to work with last mile solutions, transit priority for those who don't or can't bicycle, um, and also taking people and giving them the experience of enjoying a bicycle on the Bay Trail on the weekend with their family. So we're very excited that that's been approved. We are we have the money to do the design of it, the final design of it, and we are going to go out and start um, making pitches to try and get the construction funds to do this. Uh, we also just opened our bicycle pedestrian bridge um, across the railroad track, which is very popular with folks and I walk it every day with my dog and see lots of people talking about it and looking at where it goes. And I've, I've had a lot of people ask me like, well, you know, what, what will come down here and what's going to happen here next? And we're building 500 units of housing with city isn't we've uh, got a private developer in our corporation is building 500 units of housing that will be right up front on the bike trail there um, along the, the train tracks. And I've already got dozens of people asking me, when will those be listed so I can move into one? So uh, I got an email from a family in Berkeley that said, we're moving to Emeryville because we want a car-free existence. And where where can we find the best listings for places to rent or buy? We are getting that kind of response from people who want to be in a community that is planning like this. And then the last thing I'll, I'll share on this topic is um, we are in the process of redoing our active transportation plan and it will be complete and come out sometime in the spring. And I will just say that it has a lot of goodies in it because um, Ali and I got to finally have the meeting we've always wanted, which was where we, after the BPAC and the advocates and the, the, the staff all and the consultants all had put all their ideas into the plan, it comes to us before the council. And uh, we identified several streets that we would like to eliminate completely from cars um, that are going to be in the plan for bike ped conversion into full bike bed pass. Uh, we've identified uh, some new ideas for 
what we call Village Greens, was, which was an idea Ali actually introduced in 2019, where we will take bicycle boulevard routes and we will actually close individual blocks to traffic and turn them into parks. Um, like uh, like you see in, in, in Bogota or Spain, where there are intersections and they're turned into to place gathering spaces, we are going to deprioritize those streets for cars by essentially cutting traffic route out of it in a couple places on several of those those routes so that they can be just dedicated to people who want to sit outside and enjoy. We'll turn the, the street space into something else and it will have a bike pass through for active transportation users to stay on a largely uh, car-free route going forward. Well, so that's amazing. Fun. That yeah, is really amazing. And, and you know, for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, Emeryville has also added a lot of housing. So there are more people living in the city than there used to be. And that's, <laughs> that's a dream. Um, but it does make me want to ask, like, you're making it sound really easy. It's like, not easy. Not I don't know. <laughs> you must get be getting pushback. <laughs> Um, we do. Yeah, we do. But here's the here's the thing. We we also get a lot of support. Um, it, it's it is mixed for sure. It's not like it's not like everybody wants that. We we every time a new building is built, there's a whole army of people who come out to the council meeting to tell us that doesn't have enough parking spaces and we eliminated parking minimums. Right. So we we did that several years ago. We, we don't want parking spaces we want housing and we want people to to have the option and people go well where are they going to they're going to park their car on the street and my thing is no we're going to actually attract like the guy in berkeley who emailed me who's like i don't want a parking space yeah. unbundle it from my rental unit so i pay less money and i can store my car my my bike in my front hallway like i that's what we want because that's how we sustain the city in the long term mm -hmm. that's what's actually cost effective for the city in the long term and that's what's healthy for the city in the long term and so we do we do face opposition um, from some some you know elements of the community where they get concerned about well so there's going to be no cars on this block and we say no there's we our plan is to take cars off that block and then they tell well then you know the delivery van is going to have to go all the way around and we're like we recognize that unless mm -hmm. the delivery company would like to be inspired with some of the ideas we have for delivery bicycles that actually yes. carry wagons behind them that <laughs> delivered to this neighborhood and they could they, for way less cost than maintaining a giant truck they could put somebody on a bicycle and bike straight up and down overland street without any problem if they'd like to do that right so part of moving the narrative forward on other types of changes you want to see is you have to change the choices and and, and that mm -hmm. requires incentives right so that's going back to our earlier point you got to give people meaningful choices with their their wallet right and they they see that it's actually that they save more money. They don't think about it at first, but when you don't pay that gas, you don't pay that insurance, you don't have that car payment, right? You don't pay for all the parking you pay for, you know, you don't you don't have all those issues anymore. You save a lot more money and you can spend it on better things. And the truth is most of the things in an inner core city like Emeryville are walk and bike accessible. We've made it such that you can wow. you can get to those things. So um it's 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 about creating the infrastructure and the incentives that actually help people make different choices. Yeah, well, you're doing things that people have been talking about for a long time. Like, you know, I don't know, I've been hearing about the transportation housing connection and like how we have to, is it, do, is it people moving into these places that have less parking by choice? Or, you know, like who are the people who will live? I mean, it was so vague 10 years ago, 10 years ago, people 
kind of didn't really believe that it was possible to create what you are creating. And it's happening in Emeryville, which sounds like a dream, right? And we need it to expand to more places. Not every place has to be like that, but if Emeryville, if Oakland, if Berkeley, if San Francisco could actually be oriented towards active transportation in the way that you're describing, other places can be as suburban as they want to, and people will be coming in and living here and spending time here, right? So how are you gonna do that? How are you gonna make the rest of the Bay Area reflect Emeryville? Honestly, so there's, I had this, I had this conversation with a regional agency leader the other day about a, a, a proposal I have, which I'll come back in several months and talk about because I don't want to get out ahead of the discussions. But, um, you know, I was speaking to a couple non-bicyclists and um, the conversation was about a proposal I had about a, a program and a plan for a bike project, basically a pilot of a bike project. And uh, why we should try this and why we should make this space usable for a period of time and do 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 what I was proposing. And there was kind of like, well, you know, um, well, we could maybe just take the cars off of half of that space and, and do it this way. We There was this, but the mindset was constantly, we yeah. need to share it with cars. And mm -hmm. I, I observed two things. My first observation was, whenever we build a road, do we always have the conversation? Well, we have to at least make sure we keep half of it for bikes. We don't do no, that, no. right? We don't do that because no. there's this predisposition <laughs> to everyone has to just use cars. Right. So there's, first of all, that was the, I just, I just want to share it as an observation. Like we don't ever, what you proposed is fine if you want to talk about it, but like we never do that. Do you ever ask that question on the opposite side of the hand? And they recognize, no, we actually don't. We don't ask that right. question. I said, we, we should, right? If we're going to do this, we should do it equitably. Yeah. But then the second question I had was, you know, or the second point was like, well, they're like, what's your goal? Like, what are you trying to, you know, what, what's the agenda here, so to speak? And I was like, I don't have an agenda other than joy. And they thought that was weird. And they looked at me and they said, what do you mean? And I said, here's the thing. I don't believe, I don't believe in like going out and convincing people to do something. Like there's some people who'll be like, oh, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. Rarely will you ever hear me say it's got to be this way or that way. I will, I will say we're, we're, we're moving forward with this. We've got consensus or we've, we've decided this. Um, we, we've put our minds together and here's our proposal. Um, but I'm not doing things to change your mind. And that some people, but whoa, 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 whoa. But you're doing such a good job. Change people's minds. Here's how you change people's hearts and minds. Here's how you actually do it. You let them find joy yeah. in it for themselves. And I, I share like when I was a child, my mother and my parents, they gave me a dirt bike and I lived in the country. And right next to our house, there was this huge field and it had all kinds of dirt hills and stuff. And I would just go out and I would bike and I would go and catch frogs and mice and watch the sunset and play in the creek. And I, and I took my bike everywhere and I would come home and my mom would make me a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And it sounds like this, like bucolic, like little romantic mid-America thing. But the truth is like, I still think about that yeah. in my forties. And I still come home and make a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And I still ride my bike wherever I want and go out to the water and I do whatever I want because I know how much joy I feel with that. Yeah. And so for me, I'm like, I try to impart on them. I'm like, listen, if, if, if a person has to bike with their kid down this road and there's cars going in the other direction, we've got police at the ends of it to keep people safe. I was like, they don't actually just have the ability to focus on their experience with the bicycle. Yeah. 
And what we need to give people is car-free spaces with just their bicycle and their family or their friends and a sunny afternoon and let them be themselves without the noise of traffic and the honking of a horn and the, the lights of a police car at the end of the street. And if we give people that space and that experience, we will, we will, we are changing their hearts and minds because what will happen is they may not become like, Oh, I'm going to buy a bike tomorrow and go become a commuter. Right. But when they have that space and they see their child have joy with that as my mother did, right. Then what happens is they go, you know what, let's take, let's take Sally to the Bay trail this weekend. And then they, they develop other things that are part of their routine and their family and their space. And then, you know what, they see their child loves something or they love something. And you know what, now they actually have to care about whether that bike lane is safe. Yes. And then they're, then they're thinking about it and then they're emailing me and they're telling me like these parents do already with Doyle Street and I see that. My child loves biking to Doyle Hollis Park. My wife always drove, she now bikes with them. Like wow. I have those emails and that is what, how you make change. Not because I had an agenda to make everyone on the north side of my city bicycle that, but people found it because we left it there for them. And yeah. that's how I feel we need to make change. And that's how I approach what I do. Because for me, it's if I just start adding spaces for people, people come and ask for more of it. Yeah, yeah. I think you just described the essence of the making of a bike fanatic, which I always felt like I was just a fanatic, but it really was just that I could see, I loved riding my bike. I loved using it to get around and I could see how dramatically different the world and people could be if everybody had that. And it made me want to spread the joy of biking. But like you said, you can't convince people. You have to actually make it possible for people to see that, not just by getting on a bike, that's part of it. But like Doyle Street, for example, is really an amazing street. And the way that it changes from block to block is makes me think there was a lot of creative effort that went into thinking about how that is going to happen. And everybody who did that got a little bit of that joy going in the world. And I hope they're all out there writing on it too. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people I see on Doyle Street when I'm out there. Sometimes they're just walking dogs too. And, and like again. It, it is, you know, scooters, like there's all kinds of things. It, it's yeah. whatever brings you joy. And if we create a space, a car-free space for people to explore and go like, they realize like, oh, it took me only five minutes to get here. Like that's the kind of things that break through people's minds about yes. spend more twice, more than twice that just trying to park your car half the yes. time. So like, yes, do. How, how do we, how do we let people unlock these things for themselves? Like, People often ask me, oh, you have an agenda. You're the, you're the bike lobby. You're the guy on the board yeah. that's going to push this and this. And I'm like, no, I, <laughs> I'm sure I would love all these things to be the way I want them to be, right? But like, the truth is, I'm not trying to actually force anybody onto a bicycle. What I'm offering is a space to let people find it for themselves. Mm -hmm. That is great. And that's also a really good note to end on because we're right at half an hour. Yay! Awesome. listening to bike talk the next interview isn't about bicycles but it is about safe streets here's taylor nichols and sarah riser a writer and photographer who lost her son to a negligent driver on a rural highway in wisconsin on january 14th 2019 
Sarah survived the crash and has been advocating for road safety and traffic victims' rights ever since. Welcome, Sarah Reiser, to Bike Talk. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my story and about the things I've learned along the way. So my story began in January of 2019, so we're coming up on three years, and my son, Henry Zietlow was home for winter break. He had just finished his first semester at Bowdoin College and couldn't have been happier. You know, everything was going so well for him, doing well in his classes. He was an athlete on the rowing team. He had just fallen in love. And he came home keen to learn how to Nordic ski because it's great cross training for rowing. So we caught our skis and we got in the car. There wasn't great snow in the Twin Cities. And so we decided to go to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan where there's a nice Nordic ski area. So we were driving through the state of Wisconsin. We were on a rural highway, Highway 63, close to Hayward, Wisconsin. It's an undivided two-lane road. And Henry was behind the wheel. And we kind of made a sound of surprise. I'll never forget it. It was sort of like, oh, that was pretty much the sound that he made. And we looked up, both of us, and a truck had crossed the center line into our lane and hit our car head on. Henry was in the driver's seat and he took the brunt of the impact. And I'll never forget those moments, which were horrifying. The impact of the crash was like nothing I had experienced. It really was like a bomb going off. It was so loud that my ear rang for days after the crash. And we hurtled across this rural road and I braced myself against the dash and we went into a ditch where we hit a tree and that's where our vehicle came to a stop. And I knew immediately that I had shattered my wrist and I looked over and Henry was unresponsive, thankfully unresponsive, slumped over the steering wheel. And I, you know, immediately tried to get my phone out of my bag and I called 911. Um, and there I was in a state of great shock, just needing to get help desperately for my son. And he ended up dying at the scene. I did not realize that he was dying at the time. Of course, when you are in a state of shock, your brain can only process so much. And I, of course, was telling myself over and again that he just got knocked out, that everything was going to be okay. Eventually, it was on a rural road. It felt like an eternity. I don't know exactly how long it took for the emergency vehicles to get to the scene. I was taken away in an ambulance, you know, telling myself repeatedly, oh, he just got knocked out. He's going to be okay. Asking the EMTs where they were going to take Henry. And even when they told me, oh, he'll go to a trauma center. Even then I was like, oh no, he just got knocked out. I'm going to see him at the end of the day. So I ended up at a little emergency room in Spooner, Wisconsin, in a lot of pain. I had broken ribs. I had a hip injury flat on my back. And a nurse came in and said, oh, the police are here. They want to talk to you. And I remember 
remember I was flat on my back and I said, great, I want to talk to them too. I want to know where Henry is. I want right. to know, you know, what, what's, what's going what's on his status, what's going on. And so I'll never forget this moment. I was flat on my back and three state troopers walked in and they stood in a line and they all slowly raised their hands to their heads and they took off their caps. And I was just... I couldn't believe it. I just looked at them in such a state of shock. And then I looked up at the bright lights over my head and I looked back at them again and I couldn't say a word. It was just too much to process. It was too much to take in. And they stood there very respectfully, probably for a minute. And then they slowly walked out of the room. And they almost didn't need to say anything. It sounds like they just... no. You know, when they take the caps off, you just know. And they said, I'm so sorry. They did say, I forgot to mention, they did say, I'm so sorry, your son didn't make it. So. Wow. Yeah. So many things come up. Was it a big semi truck and it crossed the line right into your lane? Right. So I won't mention the name of the driver, but anyone who's interested could Google it and find it. But the driver was a young man and he was driving a... Dodge Ram pickup truck. And he had a flatbed trailer hooked up and he had a car on the flatbed trailer. So it was just a lot of mass. It was a very heavy load. And we didn't find out for days that he was actually driving in violation of Wisconsin state law. So he didn't have a braking system hooked up onto his trailer. And You can drive without a braking system if your load is less than 40% of your vehicle weight. Right. He was egregiously overloaded. So he was close to 100%. But we didn't know that for many, many days. Like that took a long time to come to light. So it was an interesting situation. So the state troopers called us or we called them. My husband may have called them the next day. And there were just a lot of things that didn't seem right. So we were told, oh, there was no evidence of breaking. And that's very unusual in a case like this. Right. There was no evidence of breaking and there was alcohol in the vehicle, an open bottle. I do not believe that the driver was under the influence, but I believe that he had an open bottle in his truck. And there were just signs of carelessness and both major and minor disregard for safe driving laws and regulations. Right, right. right. You had said that there was no fault given out in the aftermath of the crash. I almost found myself saying accident, but it's clearly not an accident when one car crosses, I assume, a double yellow line. I'm not sure how rural the road was, but crosses a double yellow line into the oncoming lane, doesn't brake, doesn't have proper braking systems, is carrying a big load. And how can there not be fault ascribed? Well, I want to be really clear. So the at fault driver did receive two traffic tickets. So Uh, it's not like he got off completely without any consequence whatsoever. The consequence was very, very light. In our opinion, very inappropriate for the damage that he had caused and the negligence that was clear. So he got a traffic ticket for crossing the center line. And he got another traffic ticket for being in violation of the Wisconsin statute that required his trailer to have a working brake system on it. And one thing that I've reflected on extensively over time is that the fatality was 
almost irrelevant. He would have gotten the same two traffic tickets, whether Henry had lost his life or not. The only consequence that this negligent driver got was an upcharge on the ticket for crossing the center line. So because there was a fatality, he had to pay more on that ticket than he would have otherwise. But it's always concerned me that The fatality really didn't matter in terms of how they responded to the negligence. It was almost insignificant that somebody had lost their life. Wow. That's just a crushing story. And it's something that I think a lot of our listeners as cyclists are aware of that they're often vulnerable on the road. And to see that a life being lost is not the major issue of a crash like that is heartbreaking. And that's what kind of got you on your new journey of advocacy for safe streets and victims. Yeah, absolutely. Really over the months, as I learned more about the situation, as I learned more about the accident, I really became increasingly under the impression that this happened in the state of Wisconsin and the state of Wisconsin just kind of shrugged their shoulders. And it seemed to me that they were viewing it as business as usual, and it wasn't anything that they were going to do much about. Do you think that those laws would be different in Minnesota or Michigan or California or even Canada? Is it because of the traffic laws in Wisconsin that that was the case, do you think, or that it was rural? I can only answer that question by saying to the best of my knowledge, I think that another thing that I've learned in this journey is often negligent drivers are given a pass. I think that it's a very blunt line that's drawn as far as I can tell that you're driving under the influence, or if you leave the scene of the crash, you're probably going to get charged with some sort of criminal violation. But if you're reckless in any other way, I think in the state of Wisconsin, in many other places throughout the country, I am under the strong impression that it does often get shrugged off as well. You know, that's what happens when you're on the road and we're going to accept that. And so I thought about that a lot because what does it mean to be impaired? If you're under the influence, yes, you're impaired. If you're looking at your phone, you're also impaired. And I think in our case, if you have a load that is just so unbalanced, you can't operate your vehicle safely. Safely. And I think in our case as well, we'll never know if he was distracted. We'll never know if he fell asleep behind the wheel because the police didn't have the capacity to do a full investigation. They didn't take the at-fault driver's phone until seven hours later. He had it in his possession that entire time. And then they took it, they looked at it and handed it back to him. Those are the kinds of things I think that we as advocates for safe streets can change. I mean, one of the things that I hear you saying and that I have heard other people say is that everybody drives. So everybody knows the experience of having a traffic accident, of having a fender bender or driving a little bit too fast or being in a hurry or the car gliding out of your lane. So everyone sort of understands that. So it's very easy to forgive a driver who makes that kind of mistake. But I think that your work and the work that we can do here at Bike Talk is to wake up the driving public as to, wait a minute, when you're behind the wheel of a three or four ton vehicle, in that case, probably traveling 60, 70 miles an hour, you are responsible for what that vehicle does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the other thing that's important to mention here is that I think a lot of people who have lost loved ones to traffic violence, 
really don't want that loved one to have lost their life for nothing. And I feel like that motivates me very strongly. I don't want Henry to have lost his life for absolutely nothing. And at this point in time, that's really what it feels like. I really feel that the result of this could have been a strong awareness raising campaign by the state of Wisconsin. It could have been holding this driver reasonably accountable. It could have been installing rumble strips on the road. There could have been many, many responses to this crash that took my son's life. And I think it's just so disheartening that there really was no response. Well, let's use the word not yet, because not yet. I feel you speaking about it today, and I'm sure it must be very difficult to kind of go back and relive that moment. Even the sound that you said Henry made when he realized the card crossed the line, it was coming right at you. And I'm also sure that a lot of people that are involved in this kind of crash don't want to relive it and don't want to talk about it all the time. So I, again, thank you for sharing your horrible day with us, with our listeners and with me. And I think that we can rally the kind of attention that is required to get people out of their slumber of, well, it happens to everybody who drives a car. Right. One of the things that I'm a big believer in is that signs don't work. Yellow stripes on the center lane don't keep the oncoming car out of your lane. Bollards would, or rumble strips might, or right. having the road configured in a different manner so mm -hmm. that cars can't as easily cross those lines and cause devastation. Absolutely. But I think that one thing we're up against, though, is funding for these massive projects that would actually restructure the roads that we have. But I think that that's right. I don't think the lines help. I don't think the signage helps. And I also have thought a lot about the campaigns to don't drink and drive and whether or not those have any bearing at all on behavior yeah. of that type. And I think we really need to start um, looking beyond that and looking for other solutions. In our journey with this, it took us a long time to get information. On the day after the crash or two days later, there was a newspaper article that came out, uh, many newspaper articles, and they all said it was likely caused by ice. And that became a real source of frustration for my right. husband and I, because that was not our experience at all. Like I was in the crash. I was right there and that was not my experience. We didn't have any trouble with ice whatsoever, nor did any other driver on the road. I mentioned that to say that there were a lot of details that were not reported. The media did not say anything about the fact that this young man was driving illegally. You know, they right. only said that maybe the accident was caused by ice. It was not definitive. And so I think that that's a real problem too, that we have. And in terms of awareness raising, can we get the media to report more accurately on these crashes? And is there a way to get clarity and to get more information out to everybody? We found that as the victims, we had to work so hard to understand what was going on. We drove to Wisconsin twice to meet with the DA. We had a meeting with one and then we had a meeting with another. And it was so clear that they just weren't going to do anything. They didn't have the time for this. Again, I think that's where making your story public can really help because the DA will do it if enough people say this has to stop. Right. It's very possible that the police didn't think about taking the driver's phone no. and checking to see if he had been texting 
or right. on the phone at the time of the accident. I actually came away from this after many, many months of meetings and getting information, feeling sympathetic to the police. And I know that that may not be the case for everybody who's listening to the show here. I fully acknowledge. I think there's a lot of variation around the country and how these things are dealt with. But we did have a sit-down meeting with a DA Marcou, who is the current DA of Washburn County, where our crash happened in Wisconsin, and he invited the state troopers. And it was an interesting meeting that we had because DA Marcou said incorrectly, I might add, that the state troopers know immediately if it's a criminal case, that they just know, they just have this sense. And actually, one of the state troopers corrected him and said, actually, we are so busy at the scene of a crash. We have so much work to do to make sure that everyone who's hurt gets the treatment that they need to make sure traffic is rerouted. And I actually believed him. I think that that was true. And I think that what needs to happen is maybe there needs to be a protocol that's a little bit more formal for taking phones from drivers. I don't know. I don't have that answer right now. Was was blood taken from the driver? Do you know that? I'm sorry? Was blood taken from the driver to find out about alcohol or was that also waited seven hours? Well, it was interesting. And that's kind of a head scratcher for me because we brought that up repeatedly. There was alcohol in the car. Why wasn't he tested for alcohol? And there was DA Mark who kept saying it's his constitutional right not to have his blood drawn. We would have had to get a warrant. And of course, in many other places, they get the warrant in a heartbeat and they take the blood. But he was just digging in his heels saying that's a violation of his rights. We would never do that. Even after a crash like that? Even after a crash. I think that we have a case that's pretty egregious with DA Marcou in Washburn County. He was adamant that this at-fault driver not lose any of his rights or liberties. And he came back to that repeatedly. And so then we continued to push back. And eventually he did get a certificate from the hospital where the at-fault driver had been taken and they tested for alcohol at the hospital. And I think that's routine. I also was tested for alcohol and my deceased son was also tested for alcohol. What time was the crash? It was on a Monday morning and it was just after 10 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that played into it also. Had it been in the evening or at nighttime, they might have acted a little bit differently. But Monday morning, maybe they thought, oh, I'm just talking. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that with an open bottle of vodka under the driver's seat, that would have been enough. Well, again, I thank you for sharing the story and talking about it. And I think it's a wake-up call for everybody. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times on Sunday about road rage. And I don't think this was a road rage incident, but we have to look differently as we move forward how we deal with this kind of traffic violence and road rage violence and how many deaths are acceptable to a society because of road violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with that now with, with COVID. How many deaths are acceptable with COVID for us to keep our schools and civic right. situations open? And we're finding what that number is. And I think for far too long, the acceptable number of road deaths has been much too high, whether it be automobile cyclist, car pedestrian, or car to car. I think in Los Angeles was 256 last year. And if you don't know any of those 256 people, I guess maybe you feel differently about it. But when you do know one of those 256, that changes everything. And it comes from us. It comes from advocates like yourself Mm -hmm. making these stories heard so that people don't suffer the same consequences. 
Right. And I'm sure most of your listeners are aware that we've seen just an astronomical rise throughout the country in road fatalities and the increases are stark. And a lot of that has started since the pandemic. So, you know, I was looking at statistics in the state of Minnesota and 2020 was more deadly than 2019 by about 8%. And now this year, um, 2021 is a full 25% more deadly than 2020. And a lot of that has been attributed to speeding but we've also seen a lot of cases of road rage and racing on the road. So I think that a lot of people who are working on towards zero death initiatives or vision zero initiatives, you know, we're really moving in the wrong direction. So for many, many years, you would see a slow decrease year after year, a gradual decrease. And now since COVID-19, we've just gone starkly in the opposite direction. And I haven't seen any new initiatives to address this stark rise in road fatalities. Right. Well, I think a lot of that is due to speeding. That's what I've read in the paper. I'm not an expert on it, but I think that that's what it is. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about signs don't work. If signs work, we wouldn't need police officers on the streets because everyone would follow the signs. That's right. So we have to find ways to reconfigure our roads that's to right. make them safer for Absolutely. everybody. Yeah. And to that point, since the crash, I've just been hyper vigilant about honoring speed limits. I do honor every speed limit to the frustration of a lot of drivers around yeah. me. And I can tell you that on some roads, it feels unnaturally slow to your point. So I think that a big issue is we have roads that invoke a feeling in drivers that they should be going faster than yeah. what is actually safe. And so road redesign is so important to saving lives. I can't agree with you more. Yeah. You know, a lot of that was a misguided effort post-World War II to make our roads wider, thinking that would make them safer. And really all that did was make them more dangerous because it increased speeds on roads. It made you feel like, oh, I can go much faster. Some roads in my neighborhood are as wide as New Jersey Turnpike. And you're going by a preschool and Mm -hmm. you're going 35, 40 miles an hour. And I think most of the listeners know that when a car is going 40 miles an hour and it crashes into a pedestrian or a cyclist, it kills that person 90% of the time. But you slow that car down to 20 miles an hour and it kills that same pedestrian only 5% of the time. If I might add to that, I know it's not possible to have bespoke speed limits depending on the car that you drive, but I do think it's really important to acknowledge that we're seeing bigger and bigger vehicles. I don't spend time in California, but certainly in the Midwest, so many of the new, like the Ford one, just the monster trucks that are showing up more and more as each month goes by. And those vehicles are so much heavier than their predecessors and they're carrying so much more kinetic energy. And I really would like to see this being addressed as well, the lethality of the vehicle. Well, hopefully with Pete Buttigieg and and the new administration and the money that is coming into the infrastructure, some of these road issues might be dealt with, or at least they might have open ears Mm -hmm. to hear our voices in road design. Car design is a different story. I think as long as there's cheap gas, there'll Mm -hmm. be big cars. And that also is just scary. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of how many children can stand in front of some of these cars and the driver still can't see them. That's right. That they're actually talking about putting cameras in front of the car. (laughs) But, you know, I think too, we all need to acknowledge that electric vehicles are a bit heavier as well. And so that we just need to keep our eye on that and continue to raise awareness that we've got a lot more kinetic energy on our roads than we have in the past. Yeah. 
So are you still pretty involved in the advocacy of making the roads safe in your hometown of the Twin Cities or Twin Cities. You know, where you are um, now? I'm trying to do what I can. It's emotionally exhausting work. I know. And one thing that I'd like to mention is I think there's a real need for advocacy groups in all cities across the country, or at least all regions across the country. There's some wonderful work being done in New York City by Families for Safe Streets, and they really helped me out a lot in the aftermath of my crash. And it was just so wonderful to have the support of that organization. But there really is a need for similar organizations like that around the country. And there are some chapters of Family for Safe Streets and other parts of the country, but I do what I can. So we arranged a vigil for the World Day of Remembrance for road traffic victims. I led the effort last year and I led the effort again this year. So we gathered at the Minnesota State Capitol and we lit a candle for each life that was lost on Minnesota roads. We How many candles were there? Yeah. So this year it was 447. And so the rule at the Minnesota State Capitol is you can't actually have a burning candle, but you can have a little battery operated luminary. And I can tell you when you're standing in Minnesota on a cold and windy November day, turning on 447, it just hits you so hard. That's a lot of lives. And that's a stark increase. That's 101 more than we had in 2020. So we're just trying to shine the light on the issue that we have and make people aware of the issue. And then hopefully for the short term is a growing problem. I really hope we can reverse the trend. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Family for Safe Streets because that's not an organization that I was aware of. I'm a member of a bunch of organizations in Los Angeles and also in New York, TA and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really great. And these kinds of organizations are ones that bring us all together, cyclists and pedestrians and drivers alike. Because really all we want is to make the roads safer for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that we want that as a legacy of our lost loved ones. Honestly, that motivates me. And I think that motivates so many other advocates that we want positive change to come. So that no one else has to go through what you have gone through. That's right. Yeah. That we leave the world safer. Thank you for sharing your story. Tell me what the best way for people to support you or support your work. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I have an Instagram that's kind of a mixture. I row. So it's rowing and photography and pictures of my son, Henry. And my Instagram handle is Sarah M. Risser, R-I-S-S-E-R. And then on Twitter, I'm Henry with a Z, H-E-N-R-Y-Z underscore mom. Thank you. And I was looking at some of those this morning and they're beautiful. And again, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. It has inspired me to continue the work that we're doing at Bike Talk. And I hopefully will continue to inspire the listeners of Bike Talk and to spread the word. And this is not a futile battle. This is something that we can do. Cars have only been on the roads for, what, 100 years and only taken over the roads for 50 years. And so we can reverse it and make it safe for everybody to get to where they need to be, whether it's mass transit or a car or a bike or an electric bike or a scooter. And I want to thank you too. It's such an opportunity for me to be on your podcast and to share my experience and my story. Absolutely. Sarah, thanks very much. Get that car out of my way. I want to ride my bike today.